We'll be in John chapter 11 today, so if you'll turn there, we'll look at the first 44 verses. That's not normally what we say, is it? Uh, The first 44 verses uh, in the chapter. We'll look at that, and we'll try to do justice to 44 verses this morning. Well, let me pray for our time together, and then we'll dive right into the text. Father, just echo what Nathan prayed just a few minutes ago, that you would open our eyes, that we may see wonderful things in your word. And Father, for the preaching this morning, we pray that it would not simply come with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Grace Church, hear the word of the Lord. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to him saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, the sickness is not to end in death but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God might be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after he said to his disciples, excuse me, then after this he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? And Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This he said, and after he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe but let us go to him. Therefore Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us go also, so that we may die with him. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she had heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection 
and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And Jesus said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. And when she had said this, she went away and called Mary her sister, saying secretly, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. And then the Jews who were with her, excuse me, the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled and said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, See how he loved him? But some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? So Jesus again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, Remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone, and then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it, so that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud, with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And the man who died came forth bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. I've been assigned, I've been assigned the impossible task this morning of preaching 44 verses uh, on a single Sunday morning. I debated preaching for a couple of hours to teach the other elders a lesson for such an assignment. The sad news is there will undoubtedly be some rich content not thoroughly explained. The good news is concentrating on any one of the significant pieces of content along the way should be very encouraging to our souls this morning. As we just heard from the text, Jesus performs arguably his greatest miracle in three years of public ministry. Today's text is about life and death. All the emotion of this narrative is wrapped up in those two opposing conditions, life and death. We find contrast between the spiritual and the physical, faith and doubt, fear and courage, but make no mistake about it, 
The text is about life and death. At the center of today's text is Jesus' profession, where he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And the Apostle John intends for us to see that resurrection is not just a great miracle, but a divine person. We'll have seven points in this morning's sermon. That's what happens when you have 44 verses. I want to project on the wall those points this morning so that you'll be able to follow along a little bit easier this morning. So it's not normally what uh, I would do, but I think it'll be helpful for us this morning to have those there so that you can, as we push through the text, know where we're at. Like a master storyteller, John begins to push through the narrative in sequential order, bringing us along, building to the, the climax of Lazarus' resurrection. And we see this push through the narrative throughout the text. Let's just take a surface glance at the first few verses to see how John pushes us along in the story. If you look in verse 1, he says, Now a certain man was sick. So he's, he's beginning at this point. Now, here's where we're at. And then he says in verse 3, So he's continuing the story, right? Verse 4, but when? So now we're a step further down the story. Verse now, verse 5, he says now. Verse 6, so when? Verse 7, then after, you see all those words pushing us along the storyline. Well, we're obviously going to give some time to those verses, but I just wanted you to see how John is consistently pushing the story forward uh, with each verse. You'll see this narrative pushed throughout the text. John's telling us this story of a great miracle with a specific point in mind. He's building to a point. So all this pushing along the narrative is for a point. What is the point of the narrative? It's this. The exaltation of Jesus and the glorification of God in resurrection power. So that we might believe Jesus gives eternal life. Let me say it again. John's aim is that we would see the exaltation of Jesus and the glorification of God in resurrection power so that we might believe Jesus gives eternal life. Well, let's dive into the text to see how John gets us to that point. First thing that I want us to see this morning is Jesus intentionally hunts God's glory or chases or goes after God's glory in his life. Now, a certain man was sick, verse 1, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Bethany was about a day's travel from where Jesus was at the time that the message is sent to him. Now, it's only a couple of hours from Jerusalem, so a whole host of people, the Jews, the crowd that we will later see are with Mary, have been able to travel to Jerusalem to go to Bethany of people who knew this family. So they all began to gather there. But Jesus is a day's travel away. And it says in verse 2 that it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So Mary sends this word to Jesus. And we know that Mary's future anointing of Jesus with ointment is foretold so that we'll know just who John is talking about in this narrative. And we're introduced to a family of three adult siblings. 
Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. This family is not just any family, but one that Jesus deeply loves. That comes out over and over again in today's text. And though God's love is extended far beyond this small little family, it, it becomes obvious in the text that Jesus had a special or unique interest and love in this family. They were close friends. So that when one of them falls ill, it's a very natural thing for them to send word to Jesus. Even if he didn't have healing powers, they would have sent word to let Jesus know that Lazarus was greatly ill. But they send word knowing, having confidence, that Jesus could come to their aid. That he would have the ability to make Lazarus well. So the sisters sent word, verse 3, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Now verse 4 gives us the first turn toward the aim of the entire story. Listen to Jesus' words as he hears the news of his good friend's sickness. He says in verse 4, But when Jesus heard this, he said, The sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. The sickness is to not end in death, but for the glory of God. The sickness is for the glory of God. Let me say it one more time. Lazarus' sickness was for the glory of God. Those words should land on us. That's not normal speech. That God would ordain sickness for His glory. There's a very unique purpose for Lazarus falling ill so that the Son may be glorified by it. We find two very important things in the words that Jesus speaks here. He calls Himself the Son of God. Did you catch that? Jesus is speaking Himself the Son of God, and he says, God's glory is my glory, or the glory of the Son of God. He's claiming that the glory God gets, I get. And the glory I get, God gets. There's a circular pattern to Jesus' words. God gets glory, Jesus gets glory. Jesus gets glory, God gets glory. If God is glorified, Jesus is glorified. If Jesus is glorified, God is glorified. I think we get the point. That's exactly what Jesus is trying to communicate. And he says this in verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So he, he loves them all three. He loves his family. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Though the text tells us explicitly that Jesus loves his family, Jesus' response might cause one to initially doubt his sincere love for Lazarus. I don't know about you, but if I tell somebody I love that I have a close relative that's sick and your response is to hang where you're at for two days, my immediate assessment of you is maybe they didn't love me as much as I thought they loved me. Verse 5 and 6 are placed 
back to back to cause the reader to wrestle with the tension between Jesus' love and his actions. He tells us in verse 5 that he loves all of these people, and then he waits two days. And so we're left wrestling with this tension. Does Jesus really love Lazarus if he waits two days to go see him? The question is heightened if you believe that this family, if you knew what this family believed about Jesus, that he's able to heal. So if you knew Mary and Martha and this appeal that they make to Jesus, that Jesus loves them, that they love Jesus and they have confidence that he can heal, his two days of waiting is all the more striking. Perhaps the better question, though, is not, does Jesus really love Lazarus? Perhaps the better question at this moment would be, how much does Jesus care about the glory of God? How much does Jesus care about the glory of God? And the answer is this, Jesus cares so much about the glory of God that he was willing to allow someone he loved deeply to die from sickness in order for God to get the glory that he deserves. Let me say that again. Jesus cared so much about Lazarus, excuse me, so much about the glory of God that he was, a, he was willing to allow Lazarus to die so that God's glory would be displayed. Those may be difficult words to reconcile in your mind, but make no mistake, John writes these words so that we might see that Jesus is intentionally hunting God's glory above all else in this text. So all the emotion and everything that we hear as we push through the narrative, keep in mind that at the forefront of Jesus' mind, at the heart of Jesus, was God's glory. Well, the second thing that I want us to see is that Jesus fearlessly pursues life's mission. It says this in verse 7, then after, then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are you going there again? Now, this would be especially alarming information if you had been following John's gospel from the previous chapters. It, does, it probably won't take many of us much to think back uh, from chapters, really from chapters 5 through 10 of this constant combat between Jesus and the Pharisees or the Jewish leaders who wanted to kill him. It was constant. Almost every Sunday we were talking about this as we preached through those five chapters, six chapters. John chapter 5, verse 18, this is how far back we could go. For this reason, it says, therefore the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. So at John chapter 5, verse 18, they were wanting to kill him even more than before then. And now we're in chapter 11 after many more confrontations. So the desire for them to kill Jesus is as about as high as it could possibly be at this point. And Jesus is about to walk right back in to the nest of hornets. This reality, however, does not deter Jesus from pursuing the mission that he was given by God, that Jesus was sent to earth for a purpose. The thought of returning to the place where men hunted you and that death could await you seemed ludicrous to the disciples. It makes no sense. You just escaped death again. Why would you go back there? 
And again, Jesus' response to the disciples, like other pieces of the text so far, seems very baffling. Jesus answered them in verse 9, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. The question the disciples were asking was, are you really going to the place where your very life is at risk? And Jesus' reply almost seems aloof. But what is Jesus trying to communicate in his reply? Twelve hours in a day? What's that about? We're telling you your life is on the line. And if we go with you, our life is on the line. And you're telling us there's 12 hours in the day? The 12 hours in a day comment appears to indicate that a man's work can only be done during the daylight hours. And Jesus had work to do. He had work that is undone. It's not finished. And Jesus wanted to complete his work in the time frame that the Father had given him. He had a mission to complete. Therefore, he must go. Jesus' time on earth was drawing to a close, and he was not going to be distracted from his purpose by the threats of men or the complaints of his own companions. The light of the world comment that he makes following that certainly goes beyond just the thought of daylight and harkens back to, I think, a previous profession that Jesus makes about himself when he said, I am the light of the world. He was certainly talking about daylight, but the way that he concludes his comment makes you think that he's thinking back to John chapter 8, verse 12, when he said to the disciples, I am the light of the world. The one who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In John chapter 8, Jesus says he is the light of life. That's what he says about himself, which is exactly what Jesus is going to impart to Lazarus upon entering into Bethany. He's going to impart life. Jesus says as much in the following verses. Look with me in verse 11. This he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go for a purpose, so that I may awaken him out of sleep. Jesus was going to give physical life to Lazarus, but not just physical life to Lazarus, but more importantly, to impart spiritual life to those who would believe in him. Yes, he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, but the whole aim was to give God glory. And when he gives God glory, it creates faith in men. Regardless of the opposition that awaited Jesus and Bethany or the concern of the disciples, Jesus pursues the triune God's ordained mission on his earthly life without fear. Well, the third thing that I want you to see is Jesus happily bolsters followers' faith. Verse 12 says, The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus has spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. So then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus, is dead. Jesus makes plain to the disciples that he is not speaking of literal sleep, but rather death itself. Expressing the death of Lazarus must have been an emotionally sorrowful moment 
which must have made the following words from Jesus both tough and perplexing to the disciples. So he tells them, he makes no bones about it, Lazarus is dead. Lazarus is dead. And then he says this in verse 15, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. Those are hard words to hear. That's a tough read. Lazarus is dead, but I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there. But there's a purpose. He says, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. I'm glad for your sakes. Rather than sorrow, Jesus states that he is glad. But again, there's a greater God-sized purpose behind Jesus' actions and words. Jesus was glad, yes, but it was to the benefit of the disciples spiritually that he not be present when Lazarus was sick. It was best that Jesus not be there for the faith of the disciples. Jesus could have most certainly healed Lazarus. He had done just that for many people that he knew, far less personally than he knew Lazarus. But in this moment, in his earthly life, Jesus did not go because there was a greater purpose. Did, did Jesus get glory when he healed sick people? Absolutely he did. Did God get glory when Jesus healed sick people? Absolutely he did. But there was greater glory for God to be had. By Jesus refraining in this moment. Verse 16 says this. Despite Jesus' aim to bolster the faith of his followers, it was with, and with a happy heart, he, he did that. Thomas says this. Therefore, Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go so that we may die with him. Well, if you know Thomas in the Bible... You can read Fox's Book of Martyrs, and he's a different man post-resurrection and ascension. But Thomas was stricken with doubt even after the resurrection. And in typical doubting Thomas fashion, I believe in verse 16, with his mind fixed on his own circumstances, ignorant of Jesus' greater purpose, he sarcastically remarks about going to their pending death with Jesus. This isn't a moment of courage. It, 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 maybe we would be tempted to read it that way, but it's not a moment of courage. He's sarcastically saying, well, I guess if Jesus is going to go, we're all going to go die with him because they're waiting to kill him in Bethany. But Jesus wasn't flustered by Thomas's words of doubt. He wasn't even bothered by his seeming logic. I guess we'll all just go die. But before we throw shade Thomas's way, let's be reminded how much we love our own comforts and the degrees to which we seek to provide for our own physical safety. Who wouldn't say that Logically, it would make sense not to go back to the place where people want to kill you. That's common sense. So let's not throw shade Thomas's way. 
but with the rest of the characters in John chapter 11, let's admit that we need much help from Jesus, that we need our faith bolstered by Jesus, that we need to see the glory of God in a way that we wouldn't imagine ourselves. Well, the fourth thing I want us to see is that Jesus plainly professes resurrection's person. Now, I read that correctly. Not resurrection's power, though it certainly has that, but resurrection's person. Look with me in verse 17. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. And now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus upon her arrival, her meeting with Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Martha's approach to Jesus' arrival is one of faith. Verse 21 could certainly be misread as accusatory rather than of faith. If you would have gotten here sooner, Jesus, he would still be alive. That's not the way that it's communicated. Though she would certainly disappointed that Jesus wasn't present to heal Lazarus. She's not bitter toward Jesus in this moment. We know this because of the confession that follows. She says in verse 22, even now, Jesus, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. That's faith. That's what faith looks like. We ought to be able to say with Martha, God will give Jesus whatever he wants. Martha's faith in Jesus is evident. She rightly expresses that Jesus receives all that he asks of God. And Jesus responds to her in verse 23. He says to her, your brother will rise again. There's hope in that. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. D.A. Carson helps us here in verses 23 and 24. He says about verses 23 and 24, they are a masterpiece of planned ambiguity. At one level, Jesus' words, your brother will rise again, could be taken as no more than a devout orthodox attempt to provide Martha with solace by drawing her attention to the resurrection at the end. Essentially saying, he will rise again. Take, Take comfort in that. But he goes on, death will not have the last word on the last day. The resurrection will take place and her brother will be restored to bodily life. That is the way that Mary, excuse me, that Martha understands Jesus' words. But on another level, Jesus is promising the more immediate resurrection of Lazarus. That point escapes Martha in this moment. And only the unfolding drama will disclose the meaning of Jesus' words. Jesus says to her, In response, Martha says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus responds, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. Up until this point in John's gospel, Jesus has mentioned resurrection three times. This is the fourth. And in each of those references, Jesus states that he alone would raise the dead on the last day. He's been communicating long before this interaction with Martha after Lazarus' death. He's been communicating that when the resurrection takes place, it'll be because I empower it to take place. 
People will rise again because I make them rise again. That's not new information that Jesus has given to Martha in this moment. But Jesus isn't saying that he will just provide the resurrection. He is saying that he himself is the resurrection. There is no resurrection apart from Jesus. No Jesus, no resurrection. But Jesus says more than I am the resurrection. He also says about himself, I am the life. I am the resurrection and the life. Certainly resurrection and life go together, but Jesus is making two I am claims here, not one. I am the resurrection and I am the life. John goes on to give further explanation in the second half of verse 25. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. In verse 26, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? The second half of verse 25 stresses, I think, two important aspects of our Christian faith. That faith is required for eternal life. You must believe. If you don't put your faith in the resurrection, the person, Jesus, there is no salvation. And the second thing is that physical death is not to be emphasized. It's not the end-all, be-all. He says, he who believes, that's faith in me, will live even if he dies. So that even if you experience a physical death, it's not over. There's life. Well, it begs the obvious question that I think we should all give attention to this morning. He asks a simple question. Do you believe this? Have you put your faith in the resurrection, in Jesus, for eternal life? Have you put your faith, there's only one person, Jesus. Have you put your faith in Jesus for eternal life? I'm of the view that verse 26 lays out the order of God saving us to eternal life. He says in verse 26, and everyone who lives, that is, made alive by God, given life by God, believes in me and will never die, puts their faith in Jesus. God awakens our souls to see Jesus as the resurrection and life, to see Jesus as our only hope for salvation, and we believe, we trust. Do you believe this? We must answer that question today. Do you believe this? That Jesus, the man, is the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? Eternal life hangs in the balance in the answer of this question. To answer the question is to answer it, or to not answer the question is to answer it in a condemning way. You got three options. You can say, yes, I believe this. You can say, no, I don't believe that. Or you can remain silent. To remain silent is to say no. Jesus asked a question. Do you believe this? And there's only one answer that leads to eternal life. And it, it's yes. Yes. I believe that you are the resurrection and the life. She says to Jesus in verse 27, Yes, Lord. What did she say? Yes, Lord. 
That's the only response that we, we could possibly have that saves. But she goes on. Listen to this confession. Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. I can think of one other pretty good confession in the Gospels. It's when Peter says you are the Christ. But she adds two things that Peter doesn't say. She says, you're not only the Christ, but I know you to be the Son of God. And not only the Son of God, but I know that God sent you. That's a pretty good confession. That's a pretty good example of somebody who is saying, yes, Lord. That's the kind of stuff that comes out of the mouth of somebody who believes that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Martha's confession is nothing but astounding. Her faith is evident and it is on display. She says, Lord, I have believed you are the Christ, the Son of God, who comes into the world. Her confession carries forward Jesus' claim to be the resurrection. If you possess all resurrection power, then you must be the Messiah. You must be the Son of God. You must have been sent into this world. Jesus plainly professes that resurrection is a person. He says, I am the resurrection, and that he is that person, and that you must believe this reality. I want you to see a fifth thing. We'll try to move forward at a little bit quicker pace now. The fifth thing I want you to see is that Jesus emotionally confronts death's arrogance. Bear with me here. Jesus emotionally confronts death's arrogance. Verse 28, when she said this, when she had said this, she went away and called Mary her sister saying secretly, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw Mary, that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him, fell at his feet, saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Perhaps those last words sound familiar because she says word for word what Martha said upon her initial meeting with Jesus following Lazarus' death. Like her sister Martha, she expresses confidence in Jesus' ability to heal her brother and disappointment that he wasn't there had he only been present. But unique to Mary's encounter is her falling at the feet of Jesus weeping. Now, we don't know if Martha had tears in her eyes. We don't know what her emotional expressions may have been, but we do Mary. We do know that Mary was weeping. And Jesus responds to this weeping that he sees. When Jesus, therefore, saw her weeping, that means he's responding to her weeping. And that the Jews who came with her were also weeping. This is what it says. He was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. And said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, 
Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Though we are familiar with the verse, Jesus wept, being known as the shortest verse in the Bible, the grasp and meaning behind the verse can easily be missed. Upon a casual reading translated in our English language, we simply see Jesus' compassion for Mary and the crowd of Jews with her. But the Greek that we find here relays a different story. It relays a different story. Though I certainly believe that Jesus was certainly compassionate toward the ones that he loved and this crowd that was weeping with Mary. Jesus outwardly displays the kind of compassion that would be acceptable to any grieving family suffering from the loss of a loved one. But I believe inwardly there was a lot more going on than that. It says in the text, he, verse 33, was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Deeply moved in spirit. That's inward. And though I do think that deeply moved, which the New American Standard, which I'm reading from today, translates, so does the ESV and NIV, or if you have the King James Version, it says groaned. I think those are all fair translations. But it doesn't open our eyes to all that is being expressed in the Greek. As much as it pains me to say this, especially if Jeff Hill is here, the New Living Translation actually has a more literal and accurate rending in my opinion. Let me read it to you. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people welling with her, a deep anger welled up within him and he was deeply troubled. That's it. That's accurate. That's what was going on with Jesus inwardly. Let me read it again. A deep anger welled up within him. Why would I say that? Why do I think that's a better English translation? Because the combination of deeply moved and troubled, though they give us insight into what was happening in Jesus' spirit, the way that those Greek words would be translated, deeply moved in the New American Standard, listen to this, the Greek word, this is how you would define it. To charge with admonition, to sternly charge. To threaten to enjoin. And then the word troubled would be translated to agitate, to cause inward commotion, to disquiet, to stir up. This is what's happening in Jesus. There's this inner anger. There's this agitation. So you're thinking in your mind, if that's right, Brian, if that's what the Greek words are communicating there, what in the world is going on with Jesus inwardly? that same Greek word is used three other times in scripture that I could find and it's translated twice sternly warned and scolded but here it's deeply moved though I agree he was deeply moved I think it misses this deep moving was an anger and agitation in Jesus spirit I'll lean on DA Carson again to help us here Carson says it is lexically inexcusable to reduce this emotional upset to the effects of empathy grief pain, or the like. Jesus' inward reaction was anger or outrage or indignation. That's what was going on. So then the question becomes, what is Jesus angry and agitated about in such a tender time of sorrow? This is a 
very delicate moment. Loved ones have lost a loved one. And Jesus is inwardly angry and agitated. What's going on? What is he angry about? Again, Carson, I think, helps us here. He explains that there's debated reasons for this seemingly inexplicable anger. Some believe that Jesus is moved by their grief and is consequently angry with not their sin, but sin in general, sickness in general, and death in this fallen world that brings about so much havoc and sorrow. Others would say that they think that Mary and the other Jews were grieving like pagans who had no hope, and that their profound grief, as much as it was sorrowful, and as much as bereavement is natural, he believes in this moment that their grief had degenerated into despair, and that they weren't really putting their hope and faith in resurrection. They were essentially denying the resurrection by the way that they were grieving. And Carson believes that Jesus' deep welling anger is a combination of those two things mixed together. And I certainly don't discount what Carson said. He helps to see these possible reasons for Jesus' anger. But I also believe that More may be tied to Jesus' inner anger than that. Perhaps as Jesus considers all that Lazarus' resurrection will preach to those who witness this great miracle, he's also considering his own resurrection. Where he will meet death face to face. That when he is suspended on a cross... He will confront death. And the enemy, death, seeking to snuff out the light of life through his deceitful plans on the cross, will discover that Jesus willingly goes to the cross. Death thinks that it can claim whoever, whenever, in whatever way that he wishes, including him who has the power of resurrection. But the victory that the evil one arrogantly assumes he will taste in the death of Jesus is overcome by the resurrection and the life. Jesus could not be bound by death. Jesus conquers death with his own death when he rises from the grave. Jesus destroys death with his resurrected life. And rather than death tasting victory, the enemy discovers that it has no sting on the resurrection and the life. As a matter of fact, death is defeated by life and Jesus' resurrected life was given life, has given life to all those who are dead in their transgressions and sins so long as they'll put their faith in the resurrection of Jesus. So inwardly, when Jesus is enraged, he's anger, he's agitated, he's staring down death. He knows they have a meeting. And he knows that this resurrection that he's about to perform on Lazarus is just a hint, just a taste of the miraculous resurrection power that he'll demonstrate in the days ahead with his own life. So when Jesus therefore saw her weeping, he said to the Jews, they were, he was deeply moved within his spirit. 
And it says, verse 36, so Jesus, so the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. They see Jesus' response, this weeping. They can't see what's going on on the inside, but they see this outward weeping. And seeing Jesus' emotional response to the weeping of Mary and the Jews demonstrated Jesus' love for Lazarus. However, some in the presence in that moment could not yet see the spiritual, God-glorifying purpose of Jesus and his late arrival to Lazarus' sickbed. I do believe Jesus' inward anger is an emotional confrontation with the arrogance of death, that death thought it could claim whoever, whenever, but it didn't consider Jesus' resurrection power. Well, I want you to see the sixth thing. We're about to finish. Jesus loudly reveals God's glory. Verse 38, so Jesus again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. And Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, remember the great confession that she made earlier? The sister of the deceased said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. And though Martha believed rightly about Jesus, she struggles to see the full power of the resurrection. She didn't understand that Jesus was going to raise Lazarus immediately. Four days and the stench that accompanied a deceased body were proof of death. You might ask, well, Jesus was only dead three days. Well, they knew his death was final. They saw the water from his side when he was pierced. But four days, the stench of a body left no doubt. Jesus waited two days so that death would be abundantly evident. So that when he resurrects, there could be no doubt what has taken place. It's not just the stench. The, bo- the body begins to erode. All those things are in the process four days in. It's a gory scene. It's gross when you think about it. And Jesus intended for all that to take place. So that when he says, Lazarus come forth, there's no doubt. Jesus said, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? You want to see the glory of God? Four four days dead, Lazarus is about to rise. So they they removed the stone. Jesus, listen to this, raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it. Here's that purpose. So that they may believe that you sent me. Why? Because he knew when he raises Lazarus from the dead, there's no doubt he has resurrection power. And when people see that he has resurrection power, they're going to know he's from God. And when they know he's from God, God's going to get the glory for what takes place. And when God gets the glory for what takes place, everybody that experiences sees the miracle is confronted with the question that Jesus asked earlier. Do you believe? Oh, you didn't believe a minute ago. He raises Lazarus from the dead. Now he asks again, do you believe? Do you believe that the one who raised Lazarus from the dead is God. 
believe in Jesus, see the glory of God. So that we might believe that God sent him with a purpose. Look with me in verse 43. When Jesus has said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. That's it. His spoken word, the power was in the air. He breathed it out. And that breath that escaped Jesus' body, when he says, Lazarus, come forth, entered into Lazarus' body. And Lazarus comes forth. So that mankind will see the exaltation of Jesus and the glorification of God in the resurrection power and believe that Jesus gives eternal life. Well, here's the last thing that I want you to see. Number seven, Jesus boldly unbinds death's grip. Look with me in verse 44. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Unbind him and let him go. Death can't keep what Jesus owns. Death's effects can be undone by the spoken word of the resurrection. Everything that Jesus unbinds is set free. Especially the souls of men for whom he died and rose again to save for all eternity. Listen to me. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He's the only one that we can put our faith in to be saved. And listen to this. When Jesus sets his heart of love upon you and proves it through his death and resurrection and grants you the faith to believe, he gives new life. He resurrects the old dead man buried in his sin and trespasses trespasses, will rise. New man, raised to walk in newness of life. Listen to me, Satan can't touch that. It's everything that Satan intended is unbound and we're set free. And God does not lose what he puts his grip on. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that you would help us see the exaltation of Jesus in this text and the glorification of God in this text in resurrection power so that every person in this room would believe that Jesus gives eternal life. Father, only you can do that work. We trust you for it. We pray this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.